This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Have you ever taken the Myers-Briggs type indicator? That is what it's officially referred to. Chances are you have at some point in your life, it is a widely used tool to get an idea of a person's personality. It is used in everything from hiring at a company to online dating. And even a century ago, uh, the test is still needed as a very important component today. But there has been some controversy with it over the years, especially since a mother-daughter combination uh, came up with the test. And by the way, they didn't have much training in psychology to begin with. The new book looks at a new book looks at Myers-Briggs, its popularity, despite its origins, as well as what the popularity of this test says about us. It is titled The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Training. Uh, the author of the book is Merve Emray, who is an associate professor of English at the University of Oxford and as well a uh, fellow at Worcester College, and a pleasure to have her joining us on the show. Professor, thank you for your time today. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. I, I mean, I, I feel like Myers-Briggs is something that, that pretty much everyone has come upon in their life at some point, even you, Correct. Yeah, so my uh, dirty little secret is that before I got a PhD in English literature, I was a management consultant at Bain & Company. And that's where I first encountered it uh, during an off-site training where we were all asked to take the Myers-Briggs. And then an executive talent coach came in to debrief us on our types and what our strengths and weaknesses might be right. going forward at the company. So what was the, the then that's part of uh, of what obviously drew your attention to it. But I mean, to write a book like this and looking at the historical uh, aspect of it, uh, that, uh, you know, that had to be something uh, different coming for for as a driver for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was interesting. I mean, part of it was that when I first started researching it, I hadn't realized that Myers and Briggs were the names of two women. Uh, like many people, I had assumed that they were two men who had found themselves working together in a psychological clinic or a laboratory and had come up with this questionnaire and had sort of popularized it through their connections in the business world, in the military, in the church, all of the different institutions where Myers-Briggs is really prevalent today. Um, so when I discovered that, that it was a mother and daughter, the popularity of it acquired this new fascination for me, which was how did these two women who had no yeah. formal training in psychology uh, develop the most popular personality indicator uh, in the world today? What was it that drove them in the first place? Well, so it was a couple of different things. You know, the motivations were different for mother and for daughter. So Catherine Briggs was the mother. Um, she was uh, born in 1875. And when she really starts investigating psychological type at the beginning of the 20th century, she's interested in it as a child-rearing tool. Um, she is really interested in how one can type one's children very early on in life. Right. And based on their type, figure out what it is that they should specialize in. Um, and she thought that this was really valuable for parents because you wouldn't push your children to do things that they weren't innately, that they didn't innately prefer to do. Um, so she viewed it as this kind of tool for early childhood education and specialization. 
And then her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers, uh, you know, really inherits this language of type, this way of thinking about type from her mother in the 40s. And she sees in the 40s the rise of all of these new personality tests that are supposed to match workers to the jobs that are best suited to them. Right. And she takes issue with many of these tests because many of them divide workers into good workers and bad workers or workers who have a normal personality and workers with an abnormal psycho- with an abnormal personality. And she thinks, what if I devised an indicator? And she doesn't call it a test. She says it's an indicator because it doesn't separate good from bad. What if I devised an indicator in which all types were created equal and each type had their place in the world? Um, and this indicator would help sort people uh, into the jobs that were right for them. Um, and so basically that's why she does it, because she thinks that this will really be a way for people to sort of find happiness. How quickly, um, how quickly was this test once they, they, they put it together, which I guess they did r- r- around the 20s, correct? Well, no. So, so Catherine Briggs reads Carl Jung's psychological types in the 20s. So right. the, okay. the question, the categories are based on Jung's psychological types. So she right. reads that in the 20s okay. and starts writing about type then. But the actual questionnaire isn't designed until the, until the early 40s. Okay. How quickly was it, was it accepted by businesses, by other organizations when it finally came out? Well, it's a bit of a slow burn. So, you know, um, In the 40s, Isabel Briggs Myers is working in Philadelphia, actually, with one of the first personnel management consultants in the U.S. And he starts uh, selling the indicator to his biggest clients, which are at that point GE, Standard Oil, the New York Life Insurance Company. And these companies are all using it to, uh, you know, have their CEOs assess themselves, to interview job candidates, um, to figure out uh, whether or not you should charge certain people with certain type profiles, uh, higher premiums for their life insurance. Um, but it does sort of, it, it's a kind of trickle at the beginning. It's really these sort of individual clients or individual corporations. Right. And it's really not until the 80s when it becomes this sort of immensely popular uh, framework for thinking about personality. I mean, it's really in the 80s. Uh, that, you know, uh, management consultancies, um, uh, you know, big Wall Street firms are are placing an emphasis on people's personalities. And they're right. talking about, you know, marketing yourself in certain kinds of ways. And the type indicator then sort of explodes as this tool for, for marketing oneself. But it, it was used quite a bit, uh, you mentioned the military, by, by military elements. And, and I guess it was also used... Uh, to a degree back in World War II as well, correct? Yeah, so that's part of the history that the book tells is how actually the first person to purchase it from uh, the consultant that uh, Isabel Briggs Myers was working for was this guy named uh, Donald McKinnon who uh, ran a secret station, OSS Station S during World War II. And it was a sort of secret operation where they matched spies to the covert missions that they thought were best suited for their personalities. Um, and so McKinnon would administer it along with a number of other kinds of psychological tests and, you know, role-playing situations and interviews and things like that uh, to possible operatives whose personalities he was trying to assess. 
Um, and, you know, I, I have throughout investigating it, you know, found that it's being used by the Department of Defense, by the CIA, by more kind of contemporary uh, military institutions. So there's definitely yeah. that angle on it, too. But you talk, uh, as you mentioned, uh, about the, the growth of this type of testing starting in the 80s, but, but seemingly... Uh, every bit, in a lot of the interviews we talk about about businesses today, they want to know about people's personality because they want them to be a good fit in the office. And that's been a conversation we've really heard in the last few years, but it, it, it does go back a couple of decades as well. No, of course. I mean, this is why Isabel Briggs Myers uh, found a really sort of interested clientele for her product in the 40s. I mean, you know, and in the 50s is when uh, William H. White publishes the book, The Organization Man, which is thinking precisely about the kind of person you have to be in order to be considered a good fit within a corporate workplace. Um, So you're absolutely right that this conversation about fit and about what kind of worker looks like a good fit for a white collar job has definitely been around for a while. Um, it's really more that the Myers-Briggs type indicator sort of pulled ahead as the leading tool around which these conversations were sort of oriented in the 80s. Was there, as, as the test was developed and it was starting to be marketed, was there any criticism because of the fact that it was a marketed tool? Because I, I think some people would have the assumption that something like this would be more of, uh, of an educational piece. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So one of the institutions that was interested in being the kind of primary publisher for it in the 50s and 60s was the Educational Testing Services, ETS. They're the people who make the SAT. And they were interested in finding a test that could do for personality testing what the SAT had done for aptitude testing, right, which was that every college would use it um, to help determine their admissions. Um, And they were actually trying to validate it. And they, they couldn't. Their team of statisticians could not find a way. They, they, they just couldn't find proof for the fact that the questionnaire um, measured the categories that it claimed to measure um, or that it was even reliable. So over 50 percent of people who took it got a different result when they took it a second time. And it's really interesting because at that point in the test's history, the people at ETS start saying things like, well, you know, when employers give employee, give potential employees personality tests, often the employees feel alienated by them. They feel judged. What if the Myers-Briggs yeah. were one that they could give the employee and then they could tell them their results on it so they didn't feel so alienated? So they felt like the employer was actually sort of looking out for their interests and was interested in them finding the job that was best for them or interested in them just sort of self-actualizing more generally. Um, so when when they have to confront the lack of scientific validity and reliability, the indicator actually takes on this very different kind of function, um, a kind of softer function, uh, a way of sort of convincing employees that employers are actually looking out for their best interest when perhaps they're not. Merve Emray is the author of the book, The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I'm in, in reading up about this, I guess also the actual 
the, the terminology used to describe this test, Myers-Briggs type indicator, the word indicator w- was kind of an important factor in it because, uh, and you kind of alluded to this a second ago, it didn't make people feel like they were being judged, like it was a test. It, it, it was kind of a way to, to make people feel better about taking this. No, that's absolutely right. And if you go to a contemporary uh, Myers-Briggs training session, which I had to do in order to write this book, uh, one of the very interesting things they tell you up front is that under no circumstances are you supposed to refer to it as a test. Uh, Because a test is something that has right and wrong answers, a test is something that creates hierarchies of of its subjects based on how well they have answered the questions. And the indicator, and this is going to sound a little bit tautological because it is, the indicator is simply a tool that indicates something to you based on what you have revealed to it. Um, And, you know, this also... Right. I think we may have... Are you there? Yes, can you oh, hear me? Yeah, we lost you there for one second. Go oh, back sorry. and reset. Oh, I was saying, you know, uh, calling it an indicator and describing it as they do is another way of getting around these questions of validity. Uh, because the way that many Myers-Briggs type, uh, you know, the people who uh, offer these these courses or these training programs, right. the way they define whether the indicator is working or not is if you personally agree with the type uh, that it has revealed to you. Um, And if you don't agree with it, they often say, well, maybe you just took it in the wrong mindset. Uh, Maybe you answered the questions as your work self or your your social self. Maybe you weren't answering it as the the true you, what Isabel Briggs Myers (laughs) called your shoes off self. Um, so that so, would so that would lead to going back to something you said a moment ago, the potential of getting different results because of different mindsets, correct? Well, right, exactly. And like I said, for for the people who sell and, and market and, and you know teach based off of the test or the indicator, sorry, it's hard not to slip into that terminology. Sure, yeah. Um, the indicator. The only thing that really matters is whether or not you're satisfied with the results that you're given. Right. Um, and this is kind of the larger argument that I make in the book is that you know, ultimately, I don't care that much about these debates about validity or reliability. I kind of take for granted that it's not valid or reliable. Right. But, you know, as a humanist, what I'm more interested in is why it is that the language of type, these categories of extroversion and introversion, or even introducing yourself uh, by saying things like, I'm an ENTJ, um, why it <laughs> is that that language has become so so prevalent and why it is that we we find meaning in it, um, regardless of whether it's it's true in, in a scientific sense or not. How much more do we see personality testing now than when Myers-Briggs first came out? Well, I think we I, I mean, there's definitely more of it, you know, like the the market has grown from, I think, you know, in the 90s, the number that was being thrown around in articles on it was between 400 to 500 million dollars as an industry. Right. And there's an internal report from Facebook that came out last year that put the market at around 2 billion dollars. Right. Um, so it has definitely grown in that sense. Um, and I, I think what's interesting though is that there are many many more 
uh, tests out there, many, uh, many more models of analysis than Myers-Briggs. And yet Myers-Briggs is still the one that has the most sort of powerful pull on our imagination. So you don't often see people putting in their online dating profiles, for instance, yeah. their like big five profile <laughs> yeah. um, or their Enneagram type. Um, you, you do see them putting their Myers-Briggs type in there. Or you don't see BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed quizzes, right, that are, that are about your, um, I can't remember the name of the test that puts you into four different color categories, but you don't see BuzzFeed quizzes around that or the big five. You see BuzzFeed quizzes and type tables uh, about Myers-Briggs and, you know, what your Myers-Briggs type says about which Game of Thrones character you are. Right, so, right. This is the product that, um, you know, has, has continued to have the most enduring and persuasive uh, pull on our on our imagination of, of who we are. And I would imagine just the, the connectivity that we have via, you know, our smartphones and social media just kind of is, is a part of amping this up as well. No, absolutely. Right. So when people take those BuzzFeed quizzes, they love to share them. And I think right. often they do so in a kind of semi-ironic way. But also there is a real desire there for some kind of self-knowledge and a real I don't know, um, kind of apathy for the fact that that knowledge is is mass produced. Right. I mean, what I find really interesting was, you know, when, when the Cambridge Analytica news broke last year, um, what was really interesting to me about that case um, I, was that the personality test was initially used as a kind of Trojan horse. So mm -hmm. you took a personality test and in taking it, you clicked a terms of services box that then allowed Cambridge Analytica to basically scrape your Facebook profile for data. Um, and so one of the things that sort of signals to me is that the personality test as an object has become sort of innocuous seeming enough that you could use it to lure people to give you their data without thinking that there was anything wrong going on. Um, so it certainly has evolved, and I think we are less suspicious of it than perhaps uh, than perhaps people once were. Merve Emre is a professor of English at the University of Oxford and also the author of the book, The Personality Brokers. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. I want to go back for, for a second, if we can, because as as the mother and daughter, the Briggses, were putting this uh, this this together, uh, was there a concern? And even though she had done uh, the mom had done a lot of reading uh, with Carl Jung, as you mentioned, that they didn't have any formal training in psychology. Well, you know, I don't think there was that concern, and I'll, I'll tell you for for two reasons. Um, you know, the first was because psychology at that point was a relatively new discipline. Right. Um, it, it really had not been institutionalized for very long within higher education. Um, and so the distance between what Catherine Briggs was doing in her home or Isabel Briggs Myers was doing in her home and what somebody like Henry Murray was doing at the Harvard Psychology Clinic or Donald McKinnon was doing at OSS, uh, that distance was much, much, much smaller than it would seem today. Um, so that's one reason why I don't think it was alarming. You know, the second reason is I think many people have sort of wrongly taken my uh, have wrongly taken my um, my focus on the fact that this was a mother and daughter to mean that it should be dismissed because right. 
it was two women who had no formal training. And, and one of the things that I'm especially interested in, both sort of, you know, autobiographically as a, as a mother, um, is the fact that, you know, motherhood as an experience can initiate you into a different process of knowing a different kind of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think these women were very, very convinced that the work that they were doing as wives and mothers had taught them something, not just about personality, but about how to manage the different kinds of personalities that jostle you for your time and your attention on any given day. And that is, I mean, what is that but management work? I mean, that, that is True. a form of managerial labor. Uh, and I think these women understood that, you know, intuitively, even if they didn't quite know how to articulate it. You have the expectation that we will continue to see the, the need or the want to give tests like Myers-Briggs and, and others in our society in general. I do, yeah. I mean, I think if it's not Myers-Briggs, then something else will fill its place. I think we are hungry for the kind of self-knowledge that it presents. Uh, we are seduced by the fact that it presents that knowledge in a painless uh, and easily digestible way. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we are also incredibly compelled by the fact that enough other people, enough people around us know the language of type so that if I tell you I'm an ENTJ, you know exactly what that means. And you might even be able to conjure up some famous people or literary characters or, you know, TV stars whose uh, types are also ENTJ. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it is, it is a way of making meaning of a world that is messy and, and complicated. And so I don't see that desire to have a language that anchors us uh, to go away anytime soon. The book, again, is The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of, of Personality Testing. Mervay M. Ray uh, from uh, the University of Oxford joining us on the show. Your comments at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. It is amazing because you, you, you go into so many different kind of sectors that, that had interest in doing this, just kind of the breadth, even you know, moving through the early portions of this test being out there, just the breadth uh, of companies and industries that thought that that this was a very important component to be able to get a better understanding of the people that work for them, but also where that kind of mindset would take their company as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that one sort of important thing to stress, and and you might you might feel compelled to push back against this. Um, uh, and you should. But I think one important thing to stress is that we have pretty much naturalized, or, or let me put it this way, corporate culture has pretty much naturalized the idea that we should love what we do and that if we yeah. are well suited to doing the work that we do, then we can kind of lodge our sense of self deeper right. in that work, that we can find sort of psychological and sometimes even spiritual fulfillment from the work that we do. And I, I really want to step back and see how that is in no way something natural to the idea of working, how sure, that's, yeah. that's been historically constructed, how that's been historically built into the idea of work using tools like MBTI and slogans like love what you do, yeah. um, you know, and so I, I think it is, you know, completely reflective of the way that many corporations want to manage their employees, which is by convincing them to bind themselves to their work freely and gladly. Yeah. And sometimes to not even see it as a form of work, but a form of but a form of leisure. Tony is in Manahawk in New Jersey, and uh, he actually took the test one time. Tony, go ahead. Give us your thoughts. 
Yeah, I took the test back. In, I'm a military officer, and I took the test back in the 90s, and I was rated numerous times as an ESTJ. And my mm-hmm. daughter is a college freshman, and they just took the test, so it brought up the discussion in my house. And when I read the ESTJ to my wife, she, she was stunned, and she said, oh, my God, that's you. <laughs> I didn't really think it was me, but her and my, the rest of my family is telling me that's you. Well, t- Tony, thanks very much. And that, I guess that brings up another interesting piece on the science side uh, of going from generation to generation. Uh, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, Tony's comment made me think a little bit about how, uh, you know, when Isabel Briggs Myers was on her deathbed, she was about to sell the indicator to CPP, which is the company that publishes it now. And one of the conditions of that sale was that she would actually rewrite the descriptions of the type so that they were more general, right. um, so that they could fit more people. So, you know, there's a very good chance that Tony's wife could have read him a totally different type description of an right. ISFP, for instance, right. and he would have found that, you know, equally as relevant to him as the uh, ESTJ that, that she did read. Um, so, you know, that's another thing that's historically constructed, too, right, is there's nothing inherent uh, or essential about these types. These are descriptions that are created by human beings, and they are sort of flexed or made, made more open uh, based on the desire to sell the product. Great having you on the show today, Mervay. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and all the best with the book. Thank you again. Bye. Merve Emray, uh, who is the author of the book, The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. That book is uh, available in bookstores and online for your purchase now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.